Right, now, take your Bible and turn to John chapter um, 14. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning, John chapter 14, but I'm going to open in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for the great uh, privilege of gathering this morning to worship your God, and, and we're so thankful for your precious word. And, and I pray, Lord, you'd use your word this morning to open hearts and to draw us closer to Christ, that we might have a great, confident hope uh, that you indeed are sovereign, and our job is just to trust you. Uh, our, our job is not to figure all these things out that are going on in the world. Our job is to trust you, to believe your truth, and then live our lives faithfully uh, in accordance and just to continue to proclaim the gospel to people so that men might have hope. So guide us this hour. Open your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, here in John chapter 14, you'll remember that we are uh, working our way uh, through what is known as the upper room discourse. It's uh, Thursday night, the uh, last week of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, literally just hours before he's about to be crucified, and he is with his 11 uh, remaining disciples there in that room. And, and uh, the words that he speaks are very important, and I think that can't be overstated. What he says here is vitally important to them and to us. Uh, the Lord loves these men, and he's trying to encourage them uh, because he knows what's going to happen. They don't. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to strengthen them. He's trying to brace them for the trauma that they're about to undergo uh, because, again, he's going to die on Calvary's cross literally in just a few hours. So it's essential that he prepares them for the shock of his death. And, and we know that the hearts of the, the disciples are, are already troubled. Uh, uh, they, they put their faith in him. They love him. They trust him. They've been with him some three years or so now, and they've listened to him teach, and they've watched him minister with great compassion to the multitudes. They've seen him cast out demons and heal uh, all kinds of people with every kind of conceivable uh, illness and sickness. They've even seen him raise people from the dead. Uh, they've seen him address uh, the opposition leaders, the religious rulers of Israel. They've seen him answer every question and confound his enemies. And they've seen him on a personal level resist every temptation, uh, again, on a personal level. Uh, these men are absolutely devoted to him. And again, they love him. Uh, they, they've given up everything to follow him, everything to be with him. They believe he is the Messiah. They believe he is the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus knows his time to depart is at hand, uh, to go back to the Father. And he has uh, uh, told them that. And, and so, again, these men's hearts are troubled. And, and the only way to calm a troubled heart is to trust and hope in Christ. The only way to calm a troubled heart is to trust and hope in Christ. So that's the command that Christ gives them, verse 1. Verse 1, chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So again, Christ has told them things are changing. One of their own is going to betray him. He says at one point they're all going to deny him. He said he's going to leave them. He said that he's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be delivered up to the Gentiles. And they can't process what he's saying. So they're in despair. They're anxious. Uh, they're fearful. And again, the command by the sovereign uh, it, for the troubled heart is to trust. Trust God. Trust Christ. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he gives additional reasons for the disciples to find comfort for their troubled heart. And he says next is by believing the preparation that Christ has made for them in advance. The fact that there's going to be a future reunion with the Father. Believe in the preparation. Verse 2. In my Father's house, which I told you is really just another name for heaven, there are many dwelling places, many rooms. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Right? Believe what I say to be true. To, uh, uh, to be true. Believe the preparation that I've made you. And, and again, uh, made for you. And again, what the disciples can't see at this point, what Christ knew, is that literally millions upon millions of people and millions of individuals, perhaps even billions of people from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be at some point in history in the Father's house. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's because I read the end of the book, right? Uh, John chapter Revelation, or John says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, he says, I looked out and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches and in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Millions of people from every tribe, tongue, nation are going to be in the Father's house. In my Father's house, there's lots of room. 
I, I've gone to prepare, right? There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I want you to just draw your attention to those words, I go. He didn't say I'm being drug off. I'm being taken, captured. Uh, no, he says I go. Uh, th- this is my own initiative. Uh, Jesus wasn't a victim of sinful men. He, he wasn't taken to the cross against his own will or against his own volition. He goes voluntarily. John chapter 10, verse 17, Christ says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Verse 18 of John 10, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. He's not a victim. I go. I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you also, or there you may be also. Again, I told you that's the great hope of the church. It's the, the promise of the imminent return of Christ, meaning that Christ could come at, at any moment. It's really speaking of the rapture of the church, the soon coming return of Christ for his own people, where Christ takes his people from the earth to heaven. And again, these words are given to his disciples to encourage them by Christ. He wants his followers to have peace. He wants them to realize that there's going to be a point where they are going to be reunited with him. Uh, There's going to be a time of separation, but there's going to be a a reunion with him in heaven. And you know what makes heaven so wonderful? It's not the streets of gold. It's not the gates made of solid pearl. It's not even the presence of angels. The thing that makes heaven so wonderful is Jesus Christ is there, right? That's what makes heaven wonderful. And on top of that, we're going to be there with him. That's the promise. And we'll see him as he is. Now, last Lord's Day that we were together working through this text, we worked through verses 4 through 6. That's where the Lord says, number 3, comfort for the troubled heart, comes from trusting in his proclamation, trusting in his proclamation, that he is the exclusive way to the Father. Verse 4, and you know the way where I am going? And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and... No one comes to the Father but through me, right? I mean, just a tremendously encouraging point of Scripture. If you were not here, didn't hear that sermon, you'd do well to pick that up. Go back and listen to it. Because let me tell you this, Jesus Christ is the only answer to the problems of this world. Jesus Christ is the only answer to the great needs of this world, the problems of this world. This is a world of men fallen in sin, men alienated from God, men who are condemned uh, physically and uh, uh, spiritually uh, under spiritual death you say well brother I, I don't believe i don't believe in i'm a sinner well the bible says the wages of sin is death and if you wake up and just look around you'll see the statistics are one out of one people die it's proof we're all infected with this thing called sin we're all affected by sin graveyards everywhere people die every moment it's because of sin a world fallen in sin, a world alienated from God, a world condemned, world condemned both physically and spiritually to death. The only possible answer is Jesus Christ. Because he is the only way to be reconciled unto God. He is the truth that God has revealed to men to correct their ignorance concerning him. And he alone is the life that we need to be regenerated, to be set free from the power of death. And there's no person on the planet who's ever defeated death except the person of Jesus Christ. Now, just a, a quick comment there at the end of verse 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And while it's true that Christ makes this exclusive statement that has aroused the scorn of many, religious, non-religious, irreligious for the past 2,000 years, that if he is not the only way to God, then there is no other way to God. That he is the only means of salvation for men. That he alone is the only possible route to God. Therefore, every other religious system, every other uh, religion is in essence a, a false route to God. Now the world hates those words, right? Uh, the world hates the claims of Christ because they're true. And nevertheless, because they are true, they need to be believed because they're spoken by the one who's truth incarnate, the one who is uh, truth in the flesh, the living word. But let me ask a question. Does that dogmatic statement 
mean that Christianity is bigoted, right? That they were against people. Is Christianity bigoted? Listen to uh, David Guzik. He says this. He says, certainly there are some people who claim to be Christians who are in fact bigots. We got that. But on a whole. He says, biblical Christianity is the most pluralistic, tolerant, embracing of other culture, cultures, religion on the earth. Christianity is the one religion to embrace other cultures. And it has the most urgency to translate the scripture into other languages. A Christian can keep their native tongue and culture and follow Jesus in the midst of it. An early criticism of Christianity was the observance that they would take anybody, slave or free, rich or poor, man or woman, Greek or barbarian. All were accepted, but on the common ground of truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. To leave this common ground, he says, in Jesus is spiritual suicide, both for now and eternity. I think that was a great observation, right? Oh, you guys are just so exclusive. Well, the, 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 the proclamation of Christ is exclusive. He is the only way. But Christianity is not bigoted whatsoever. Uh, if you'd like, you can go back and read this afternoon, Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 9 that I just read to you, that people from every tribe, tribe and tongue and people and nation are going to be before the throne because God has a desire to save men because God so loved the world, right? And the world's full of sinners that need to be saved. Now, again, in the context, the disciples are confused, right? They're anxious. They don't understand. They're having a tough time processing. You've got to put yourself in that time frame because we're on the other side of the cross. We see with a little more clarity. They don't see what we understand. So they don't understand how Messiah could die. They don't understand that how the Messiah can be a, a victim of people. It doesn't fall into their concept of what the mission of the Messiah is. So they start at some level to perhaps worrying that maybe they believed in him in vain. So what you have in the verses before us, verse 7 through 14, is Jesus is going to do three things. Three things to encourage their heart and three things to encourage our heart. First, he's going to reaffirm him to them his deity. He's going to reaffirm to him his uh, deity uh, that comfort comes to the troubled heart by trusting in the person of Jesus Christ, trusting exactly who he is. So that's verses 7 through 11. Secondly, he's going to guarantee that his followers are going to do even greater work than he has done. That's verse 12. And third, he's going to say that if we ask anything in his name, he'll do it. That's verses 13 and 14. He's saying, in essence, that I'm not going to leave you uh, without power and and that the gap between heaven and earth is closed by prayer. That's all tremendous words of encouragement to these disciples, the reality of who he is, what he intends to do in and for uh, those who belong to him, encouraging to them, encouraging to us. So let's start to unpack these verses that I read at the top here, right? Comfort comes to the troubled heart by trusting in the person of Christ. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How do you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am the father and the father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Now, repeatedly through this study, I've said one thing probably over and over again, that the most important issue for any man and woman is to come to a proper understanding of who is Jesus Christ. Not who you think Jesus Christ is. That would be helpful if it lines up with the truth. But who is Jesus Christ? Uh, Because the implications are profound. Uh, The significance unparalleled for both time and eternity. And one thing that Jesus has repeatedly told them about himself is that he is God. He he said it numerous times. He he just said it there in verse 6. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father but through me. The reason is that he is the way to God because he's God incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity. So verse 6 really is nothing less than a full affirmation, full claim to deity, as the verses laid out before us are. Jesus is God. Three simple words, but I tell you what, they'll get a response. I watch and I read a... Uh, something online the other day, just a, a flow of thought from people responding to those three words, Jesus is God. It is amazing the amount of hatred for those three words. The amount of vitriol for those three words. 
Jesus is God. Profound truth. Simple truth. Profound truth. Jesus is not simply a manifestation of God. Listen, he's God manifest. He's God, fully God, put on display. Remember, that's the entire reason why John writes this book, this gospel. John 20 and 31. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the constant theme of the gospel. Now, we're going to do, we're going to turn to a lot of texts. You can follow or you can sit and listen. I don't want you to get lost. I don't want you to, I don't want you to turn something and then start reading like three paragraphs ahead and miss the last 15 minutes of what I just said. So listen or follow with me, but follow carefully, closely. I'll try not to lose you, but, but I'm going to move through a variety of texts. Look back at the beginning. It's always a good place to start. John chapter one, verse one. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God. It's proston theon, face to face with God. And the Word was God. And really the idea there is the the, the Word was fully God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the eternal one of the universe. That, that's something that the apostle Paul himself uh, confirmed later. You don't need to turn there, but Colossians 1 and 16. It says, for by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created. Colossians 1 and 16. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who Jesus Christ is. It's the same thing that the writer of the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 1. Don't turn there. Just listen. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to his, us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ, eternal creator, eternal sustainer. John chapter 1, where you are, drop down to verse 14. The word, God, right? The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. He pitched a tent. He tabernacled, what that word means. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten, the only one of his kind. From the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That's why Jesus Christ, one of the reasons Jesus Christ came into the world. To display to us what the Father looks like. Just listen, John chapter 3. Or you can look, I don't care, I'll let you look. How's that one? I I just don't want you to get lost. John chapter 3. Verse 13, Jesus is speaking. John 3 and 13, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Jesus Christ says, look, I'm from heaven. I've come down from heaven. I'm the giver of eternal life. I am the Savior, the only Savior of the world. To the Samaritan woman at the well, just listen, John 14, or John chapter 4, verse 25. He's speaking there. The woman speaks, uh, John 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and the one who comes, he will declare to us all things. Verse 26, John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the one. Turn over to John chapter 5, verse 18. John chapter 5, I'll pick it up in verse 16. This is when Jesus healed the paralytic on the Sabbath there at the pool of Bethesda. Starting in verse 16, John chapter 5, For this 
reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath? And he answered, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Turn over to John 8, verse 23. John 8, verse 23. He was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Verse 24. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am. Now, the next word, he, in most of your translations is probably italicized. If it's not, it should be, because it's not there in the original. Unless you believe that I am, is what it says, you shall die in your sin. It is without question an unmistakable claim to deity, a claim to be God in human flesh. I am. I I am the great I am. That's exactly how God describes himself repeatedly in the Old Testament. I am. And the truth is, unless men humble themselves and submit themselves to the word of God and reject the opinions of men, ours and others, who set their opinions above the the word of God, men are going to remain in their sin. And those who reject the truth about Jesus Christ are going to be eternally lost. Those who reject the truth about Jesus Christ are going to be eternally lost. They're going to face the physical, conscious, eternal torment of a holy God because of their rejection of his mercy to them through Christ. They'll be eternally lost in a place of unending horror, a place where there's no hope of escape, a place for all eternity that you'll be suffering and because you will continually for all eternity be sinful. And because eternally you're sinful, eternally you're always suffering for your sin. You're always paying for your sin. Utterly, uh, always utterly painful, always bitter, uh, with an accusing conscience that has no relief. That's why hell is described as a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, beyond uh, description. Uh, Because men who are there didn't have to be there. They are there. They're there because they rejected the truth about Jesus Christ. They rejected the Savior. Look back up in verse 21 here of John chapter 8. He said to them, therefore again, I go away and you shall seek me. You shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He, he was going to heaven. They're on their way to hell. You shall seek me and you will not find me and you shall die in your sin. Listen, people in hell want relief. People in hell want to be delivered, but they never will be, because once you take your last breath and you step into eternity, what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ will follow you forever. Reject Jesus Christ in time, and it's too late. It's eternally too late. He said to them, again, verse 21, to them, I go away, you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin where I'm going, you cannot come. Therefore, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he's where I'm going, Uh, 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 where I am going, you cannot come. And these guys are so arrogant. They think they're on the fast track to heaven because they're religious. And he's saying, no, you're an error. You need to stop and listen to what I'm telling you. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Verse 24 again. I, uh, I say, therefore, to you, you shall die in your sins, for unless you get an accurate understanding of who I am and submit yourself to that truth that I am declaring to you, unless you believe that I am God come in the human flesh, you'll die in your sin. That is a word of warning, a word of caution. It's set out of love for people to not... Be deceived. Not to believe a lie, but believe the truth. Because the truth is, nobody wants to go to hell. Nobody intentionally is going to set the course of their life to go to hell. But hell is going to be full of sinners who fail to repent. Full of sinners who fail to repent and believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing who he is truly. Hell is going to be full of sinners who rejected divine revelation. And in great error entrusted their eternal soul to their own fallen human wisdom or the uh, wisdom, human wisdom of other fallen men. 
And again, hell's going to be a place of no hope. No hope of ever escaping. A literal place of endless conscious agony, endless torment. A place of remorse. A place of anger, despair. Because again, those who are in hell are there because they have been deceived by their own sin. They have been deceived by Satan themselves. And they have been deceived by the error of other fallen men, listen, who are with them right there now in hell. That's the company you'll keep if you reject the truth. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am God in the flesh, God incarnate, you shall die in your sin. Look over to verse 58 of John 8. Verse 58. Let me pick it up in verse 51. John 8, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. If I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, nothing less than an absolute claim to full deity. The Lord Jesus Christ, again, taking for himself the sacred name of God, I am. They don't believe, verse 59, therefore they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hides himself and goes out of the temple. Turn over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, for good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Turn over to chapter chapter 11. Chapter 11, I wish we had time to go through this more, but we don't. I just got to pick a few verses here and there. But you remember John chapter 11 is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? He's been dead in the tomb four days. And Jesus Christ raises Lazarus from the dead by the power of his word. Verse 4, right? They're trying to figure out uh, what's going on. The disciples don't quite get it because he's sick. His friend Lazarus, Jesus heard it. He said, verse 4, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Verse 14. Again, they're still arguing. Well, if he's sick, he'll recover. He says, verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I knew that you hear me always, but because these people standing around, I said that they may believe that you did send me. Verse 43. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who died came forth, bound hand and foot in wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. Listen, it's pretty obvious, but no mere man raises someone from the dead. And you say, well, that didn't happen. Well, how do you know it didn't happen? History records that it happens. It happened and everybody in the area knew that it happened. 
The religious leaders knew that it happened so much that not only did they want to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence. No mere man has the power over death. That tells you since Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, he is no mere man. He's no mere man. In our text here in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Just listen in John 19. Pilate therefore took and scourged him, and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and gave him blows on the face. And Pilate came out and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Verse 7, the Jews answered, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Everybody understood very clearly what Jesus Christ said. So who you believe Jesus Christ to be is without question the most important question you can ever answer and give your attention to. Many people throughout the centuries, scholars and skeptics alike, historians, theologians, religious leaders, have attempted to explain away the truth about him. Some believing that he had the spark of divinity inherent to all people, but in him it burned most brightly. Many look at Jesus and just see his sacrificial life and say, well, there's just a model for us to follow. Most, not the only means to follow. Most don't see him as the only way to the Father. Most don't understand that he's the only way that a man might be saved and go into heaven. They see him as the example of faith, but not the object of faith. Most people are not willing throughout history, have not been willing to accept and believe the biblical record of Christ. Again, many seeing him as some kind of crusading pseudo-political revolutionary. But again, most people, probably the predominant view is most just see him as a man. Moral teacher, human. They'll condescend to say he was even a good man. But as many have noted throughout history, no one can claim to be God in the flesh. And if that claim were false, that person's not a good man. If a man claims to be God in the flesh and he's not, he's not a good man. And if he knew that claim was false, then he would be an evil deceiver. And so certainly he wouldn't be a good man. He wouldn't be a good teacher. He wouldn't be anyone that you'd want to listen to or follow. If he claimed that he was God in the flesh... And it wasn't true, but he sincerely believed it was true that it was God. And again, it's not true, then he's not only not a good man, he's not a good teacher. He's not just someone who's been deceived, but he's someone who is a lunatic. And you certainly don't want to follow him. Got enough of those guys leading this country. The evidence conclusively shows that Jesus Christ is not a liar. He's not a lunatic, but he's exactly who he claimed to be. He's the Lord of glory. He's God come in the flesh. Listen to me. Jesus Christ is this country's only hope. And I'll applaud any politician who'll stand up and look at a microphone or take a microphone and look square into the camera and say that because Jesus Christ is the only hope for this country. Jesus Christ is the only hope for the world. And listen to me, Jesus Christ is your only hope on a personal level. That's it. Now, the Jewish religious leaders of the day were motivated by their own bitter jealousy of him. They rejected him. They uh, accused him of being a Samaritan, one who is demon-possessed, one who is insane, one who is illegitimate. But it's interesting that they never denied his miraculous power because his miracles, his power was too numerous, too common, too out in the open for everybody to see. They just discounted it and said, well, it's just satanic. 
Jesus, in his ministry, in his life, assumed the prerogatives of deity. He claimed to have power over people's eternal destiny. He claimed to have authority over the, the divinely uh, uh, ordained institution of the Sabbath. He had uh, uh, power, he claimed, to answer people's prayer. He claimed the right to receive worship, uh, faith, and obedience that is due to God alone. He assumed the right to forgive sins, which, again, is something the Scripture says that only God can do. He called God's angels his angels. He called God's elect his elect. He called God's kingdom his kingdom. His favorite title, I've read a couple times this, this morning already, was the Son of Man, which is a messianic title. It comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It is a title that places one on equal terms with God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And unlike most men who do not know who Jesus really is, Jesus does. He knows. And again, he has repeatedly told the truth. He has repeatedly made the claim that he is God come in the flesh. He is one who is absolutely equal with God the Father. One writer says this, those who deny that Jesus claimed to be God must deny the historical accuracy and truthfulness of the gospel records and thereby establish themselves as a superior source of truth. They are saying they know, they know more about what was true 2,000 years ago than the inspired eyewitnesses. Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? Again, it is without question the most important question you can ever properly answer and give your attention to because if you don't believe the reality of who jesus christ is god incarnate second person of the uh, eternal trinity born of a virgin one who's lived a sinless life who has died on the cross of calvary is the only substitutionary sacrifice for sins of all who would ever believe upon him that he rose from the dead ascended to the father in heaven that he now intercedes for his people and when one day will return from heaven to this earth in glory you cannot be saved You cannot be saved. And you will die in your sins. And you will face God in eternal judgment. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father but through me, he said a mouthful. And it's true truth. True truth. Now, all that by way of introduction, just to get us to John chapter 14, verse 7, that are our verses this morning. So make sure you're there. I want to set the stage. Because that's the next thing that Jesus talks about here in John chapter 14, verse 7. Comfort comes to the troubled heart by trusting who Jesus Christ really is. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, the verbs change here to the plural. So he's not just addressing one. He's not just addressing Thomas alone as he was in verse 6, but he's really addressing all of them. It's really not just you, it's really you all, plural, if you all. If you all had fully understood, uh, understood, right? If you all had fully understood who he was, if you fully grasped the reality of who he was, then you would know the Father as well, is really what, he, what he's saying. Now look, the guys are close. You've got to, again, put yourself in the context of the time. We're on the other side of the cross. They're on, uh, we're on this side of the cross, they're on the other side of the cross. They're close. They have a basic understanding of who he is. They've even declared that he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one of, of, of God. Uh, Peter made the claim in Matthew 16, 16. He, he was the son of the living God. So they're close to grasping the full truth of his deity. They're beginning to understand its meaning, but nonetheless, they're still a bit confused. So Jesus is going to chide them. He's going to reprimand them. And again, verse 7 stands as a claim to the full deity his full deity, his full equality with the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Verse 8, he's going to say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Back earlier in chapter 8, verse 19, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you neither know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father. Here in Verse 11 of chapter 14, Jesus is saying pretty much the same thing he just told these guys back in chapter 8, but he's saying it in a little kinder manner because he's trying to comfort them. He's not rebuking them. He's comforting them. He's he's chiding them. He's reprimanding them, but he loves them. He loves them. He knows that they love him. He, He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to know that in his absence, the Father is going to take care of them in the same way that he has cared for them because he and the Father are one. 
Now, the Father and Son, while they're two distinct personalities in the Godhead, two distinct persons, they are one. Uh, uh, he and the Father are one in essence. Right? Members, they're God. Two persons of the Trinity. And, and, and the Scripture says if you have a relationship with one, then you have a relationship with the other. Back in John chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus said, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So you reject the, the Son, you reject the Father. You receive the Son, you receive the Father. Towards the end of his earthly ministry, later in the, his, uh, the latter years of his life, John writes this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. There are a lot of people out there who say they're religious and a lot of people who say they worship God. They just don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. You know, I mean, game over. You can say whatever you want, but that is a fallacious statement. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. You have to deal with it. Well, I think the God of Islam and the God of biblical Christianity are the same. The God of Islam has no son. Biblical Christianity understands Jesus Christ is the son, like the father. Jesus, again, verse 7 says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And then that phrase, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, very technically, it could mean from that very moment, that moment that he speaks that sentence there in the upper room, from now on they're going to understand. But most likely, when you continue to read the text, you look at Philip's question in verse 8, most likely, it suggests, again, the disciples aren't going to come to a full understanding of who Jesus, tell, uh, who Jesus is until later, until after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, after the coming of the person of the Holy Spirit at the time of Pentecost. So the events that are about to take place, that's going to change the situation. That's going to allow the, the disciples to gain a deeper, profound knowledge of God. Then these men are going to have a full understanding of Jesus' Jesus's deity and uh, a relationship to the Father, just like we do, because now we'll all be together on the other side of the cross. But the certainty that their understanding is going to have, it, it, again, is so certain in the future, Jesus spokes, uh, speaks as if it's a present reality from now on. So again, it's really not this precise moment, but henceforth, I like that, I think the uh, authorized says that, henceforth. That's good, right? Henceforth, from this moment, at a certain moment, you're going to understand, you're going to have a full understanding, and you know him and have seen him. And again, that's exactly what happens, and uh, will happen. That's exactly what happened historically. Remember Thomas, right? After the, res- after the crucifixion, and, and uh, he doesn't get it, right? Uh, the resurrection has happened. Other, other disciples have seen, uh, have given eyewitness testimony. They've seen Christ. He doesn't get it. I won't believe. I don't believe. And then he finally sees Jesus again after the resurrection, and he understood exactly who Jesus is and was. John chapter 20, verse 28. He looks at the, reason, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He says, my Lord and my God. I get it. Now I see. Now here in the text, Thomas has uh, been silenced by the reply of Jesus, but not Philip. Philip wants to stand up and talk. Verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. What? Show us the Father? Philip, you want some kind of vision? Some kind of sign? Maybe something along the lines of the vision that God gave Moses back in Mount Sinai in the Old Testament? Again, it's another confirmation. The statement is another confirming fact that at the moment, the disciples don't fully understand the truth of who Jesus is. They have somewhat of an understanding. It's leading in the proper direction, but it's kind of a shallow understanding. And if we're really honest, we can't knock Philip for that statement that he makes here. Because I think it's really true, if we're honest with ourselves, I think it's true that everybody in the room, we'd all like to see a supernatural manifestation of God. Right? Show us the Father. Because the truth is, we're all like Philip. The truth is, there is a desire for us to walk by sight and not by faith. We're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight, but there really is deep down inside of us a desire to walk by sight, not by faith. Show me the Father, right? Because I'm really struggling. Show me the Father. Give me a sign. Give me a vision. Okay, if that's too much, how about just give me a hug, right? You ever say that? Just give me a hug, right? 
We, we, we want, we, we want uh, sight. But the truth is, none of us really need a visible manifestation of the Father's presence to sustain us in faith. What we need is Christ. What we need is Christ and a greater growing understanding of Christ. And that's exactly what the Lord gives him. You'll note in the text, the Lord didn't perform any miracles. He didn't give him any kind of vision, didn't display any great power. He just simply commands him to believe. Believe. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, and I think again by way of gentle rebuke, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? We don't need signs. We don't need wonders. We don't need the spectacular. We don't need the miraculous. We don't need visions. Again, all we need, listen, all we need is Christ. And a greater, growing, more comprehensive understanding and love for the person of Jesus Christ, because he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want more, you want more of Christ, then you have to go to this book, you have to go to his word, because there the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate author of the scripture, explains him, and the Holy Spirit puts him on display. And if you want to know what God the Father is like, then you look at his Son, because there's such a close, intimate union between the members of, a, of the Godhead, the members of the Trinity. To see the Son is to see the Father. Now, we want to make sure that we don't go too far. We don't want to become heretics. We don't want to confound the persons, as they say, meaning the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. All three individuals. Uh, The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 9, if you want to look it up. Speaking about one God. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, These are three, one eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. One God manifests in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I just love that phraseology, he who has seen, has seen. But he who has seen me, has seen. He who has seen me, has seen the Father. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? And I think probably said with a note of sadness. Because he proved who he was over and over and over again, by his word, by deed, by the compassion and the love that he showed the people. By the repeated demonstration of his divine power, he healed the sick and the lame, he cast out demons, he walked on water, he calmed the storm, he gave sight to the blind, he even raised the guy from the dead. And they saw it. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, they lived with him for three years. The one who's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and yet they still didn't quite get it. They didn't understand. Probably, in part, because his departure is not fitting up with their preconceived messianic expectations. And I think you probably can affirm that uh, 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 proposition there uh, and make a case for it, because even after the resurrection, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, six, they're still looking for Messiah to set up the kingdom and set it up immediately, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. So when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, it's after the resurrection. Their understanding and proper was from the Old Testament that the Messiah would set up an earthly kingdom and rule physically over the nations. If you want, take out Psalm 2 this afternoon and read it. Just read what it says. And that's exactly what's going to happen. He is going to set up a kingdom on the earth. He's going to rule over physically the nations. That's going to happen, but not yet. It's still coming. Christ will rule over the nations in time because God's word has promised that repeatedly. And the reputation of God is at stake to keep his words. And by the way, it's somewhat of a tangent, I got it, but if there wasn't going to be a kingdom, I would suggest to you Acts chapter 6 in the margin someplace might have been a good place to explain that to them. There wasn't going to be one. But he doesn't do that. Because the Old Testament always looked forward to the coming king, the coming kingdom on the earth, and then an eternal kingdom to follow, and God's word and his integrity of his word to make sure that happens is at stake. It will happen. Every time we take the Lord's table, we take it in remembrance of him until we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding or the Father dwelling in me does his works. Again, the Lord is speaking of that perfect intimate union between himself and the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words, the words I say to you, I don't speak of my own initiative. I mean, repeatedly throughout his ministry, he said to his disciples, his words weren't his own. He's not making this up on the fly. He's speaking the words of the one who sent him. He's speaking the words of God the Father. Spoken, and when he speaks, the words that he speaks with power and authority, divinely powerful words of Christ, divinely powerful words of Christ that penetrate the heart and mind of men. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Christ were so powerful. At the conclusion of the sermon, the text says, Matthew 7, verse 28, the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as having one having authority, not as their scribes. When the religious leaders sent some armed men to seize Christ to arrest him, and they failed to do so, and they came back, and they said, where is he? Why didn't you bring him back? John 7, verse 46, the officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father in me, and the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative? And because of the unity of the Godhead, when Jesus speaks, God the Father, who is acting whom he is acting in his stead, he's speaking through him. And you go, go, can you prove that? Of course I can prove that. Everybody in the room understands that personally if you believe upon the person of Jesus Christ because you believe the word of God. Right? We who believe Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, the Savior, our only Savior, know that to be true. It was the power of the word of God proclaimed through the person of Jesus Christ that has caused us to repent of our sin and come to saving faith, to new life and saving faith. And we hear the voice of Christ, we hear the voice of God the Father, the voice of truth bidding men to repent and come to him, be reconciled. So when Christ spoke, he spoke with constant dependence upon God the Father. He he didn't say anything out of God's authority, outside of God's uh, guidance. Then he says this, He says, but the Father abiding in me does his works. The Father abiding in me, dwelling within me, does his works. It's not only the words that prove his deity, but again, it's the unprecedented, undeniable, miraculous work that he performed over and over again. That again, not even his most ardent enemies ever denied the supernatural power of Christ. Again, it was so often manifested, so undeniable even his critics couldn't say he lacked power they just simply blasphemed him said that his power came from Beelzebub but from Satan Matthew 12 verse 24 so he's going to challenge these guys not just challenge them he's going to command them command the disciples verse 11 command everybody in the room These guys who are wavering in their faith, you who are wavering in your faith, here's the command. Believe Christ. And it's really keep on believing because the verb that we're going to read, believe, is really a present active verb. Verse 11, believe me or keep on believing me that I am the Father and the Father in me. So again, Christ is urging his followers to believe him, believe his word. Take Jesus at his word because his words are true. And again, every one of us in the room has two choices. Everybody in the world has two choices. You either believe yourself, your own opinions, or the opinions of other fallen men, or you believe the word of the living God, this book, and everything it says, that's it. There are only two sources of truth in the entire universe. Either God's divine revelation to men through Christ as revealed to us in the Bible, which is true truth, or satanic error satanic lies and all the different forms that it takes but that's it you either believe the word of god which is the truth or you believe a lie and jesus says believe me keep believing me keep on believing me what i say is true because it is that i am in the father and the father is in me now again it's difficult for them at this moment Because their faith is weak. So then he adds this. Otherwise, believe on account of the works. 
Believe the works. And again, the principle is applicable to us all in the room, right? Times are weak as times our faith is weak. We all have that option to either listen to ourselves, and we do that way too much. Listen to the influences of the world, the flesh, the devil, and this evil system all around us, or we just stop, make the choice to believe the simple command of Christ, keep on believing. And as I told someone the other day, and I told you often, we need to speak the truth to ourselves. We need to stop listening to ourselves, and we need to start speaking truth to ourselves. And God's word is truth. It's always the issue of authority. Whose authority are you going to follow? Yourself and your fallen ways? Or are you going to believe the truth of the divine God who is on a mission to rescue the perishing? Well, I don't know if I believe all that. Completely irrelevant. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what I believe. I don't believe in gravity. Good. Try it out sometime. Step out the back of an airplane at 30,000 feet. See how it works for you. Yell all the way down until you come in contact with reality. God is on a rescue mission. He has sent his son because God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. God is on a rescue mission. He's given you the truth. He's given you the person of the Jesus Christ and people who, who didn't quite understand until they understood. And they're proclaiming the truth because God wants people to know the truth. There is a hell. There is a judge. There's an appointed day of judgment, just like the guy who says, I don't believe in, the, in gravity. There's an appointed day with reality when he hits the turf. Then he comes to a true knowledge of the true truth. And God is saying through Christ, don't face me in judgment. Humble yourself, repent, keep on believing. Believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. When your faith is weak, you either listen to yourself or you tell yourself the truth. This is what God's word says. Did we not sing some songs in the beginning of the hour about God being sovereign? If he's sovereign, that means he's in control. If he's sovereign, what in the world are we worrying about anything? Just get with the business. Proclaim the gospel to others. Throw men a life raft, as it were, a life belt. Come, come Come to faith in Christ. So the command of Christ here is simple. Keep on believing. Keep on trusting what he says. And again, the command to us is the same. Believe the word of the living God. Walk by faith, not by sight. Because Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not about religion. Biblical Christianity is about believing the truth. Listen to this. One writer says this. Christianity is all about believing if you think the height of spirituality is to see miracles, hear voices of God booming out of the ceiling, or experience very supernatural phenomenon, you don't have a clue regarding what believing God is really all about. I like that. He talks like me. He says Satan can duplicate all those things and counterfeit. If you want manifestations of supernatural power, you can get them at a seance. Christianity is about walking by faith, not by sight. Because genuine faith manifests itself believing the word of God and the words of Christ. Comfort for the troubled heart comes by trusting Christ in his presence, trusting his preparation, trusting his proclamation that, again, he's the only exclusive way to the Father. Comfort comes to the troubled heart by trusting the person of Christ, that he's indeed God come in the flesh, to trust his words, his works, His life, while incarnate, again, prove over and over the reality of who he is, that we can trust him and we must trust him. But now he adds two additional points for trusting Christ in the middle of all of us having trouble or these guys having trouble with an anxious heart. And very quickly, I'll look at him. The next one, comfort to the troubled heart, comes by trusting the power of Christ. Trusting the power of Christ, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I shall do... All, uh, the, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. It's a fascinating verse. An astonishing promise. Those who believe in Christ will do greater works than Christ did. Now look, th- this verse is not a validation for the charismatic excesses and errors uh, of our time. 
And I don't really think the issue here is a demonstration of power over the physical and spiritual world. Uh, you do see that early on after, uh, in the early book of, uh, early chapters of the book of Acts, you see the disciples performing certain miraculous works as Christ did, Acts chapter 5 and so on. But again, physical manifestations or, or uh, providing uh, miracles on a physical level is not primarily why Jesus Christ came. It's not what he has in mind here. And again, most certainly the disciples didn't do more powerful works than he did more powerful miracles. When, when the Lord is speaking about his followers performing greater works, I think he's referring to the extent of these works. And I think it's tied to the reason that he gives, and it's tied there in that word because. Greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. Why is that? What happens next? What happens when he goes to the Father? Sends the Holy Spirit, right? He sends the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that just a little bit later on here in chapter 14, right? Who comes and dwells believers who empowers them for ministry. And the greatest work that Christ did when he came to this world was the work of salvation. And that was his purpose. He came to reconcile sinners by way of providing forgiveness for the sin. Therefore, the greatest works, the greater works, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also. The greater greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. It's the work of salvation. And, and just take note of the fact that Jesus never preached outside of Palestine. Yet his followers are going to spread the truth of the gospel to the entire world. Jesus only had a limited contact with the Gentiles, Mark chapter 7. But his disciples, specifically Peter and Paul, they're going to reach in the Gentile world with the gospel. The number of believers in Christ at the time of Jesus' incarnation, time of uh, appearing here on the earth, was just in the hundreds. But after, it's going to be in the thousands. Again, it's the power that's going to be performed, this great work, the proclamation of the truth, the gospel comes by way through, again, the power empowerment of the person of the Holy Spirit, and multitudes are going to believe. And again, another comfort to the disciples in his absence from the Holy Spirit, when he comes, the Holy Spirit's going to provide them all the power they need to extend the work. The work's not going to stop when Christ departs. And again, that's exactly what happened. Why is there biblical Christianity? Why is there a proclamation of the gospel? Christ crucified as a criminal on Friday... All hope is lost. These men are fearful. They're in hiding, afraid. Something happened on Sunday. Right? Something happened on Sunday. The resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and he comes in power. And he takes this ragtag group of fearful men and he transformed them, transformed them to be a group of fearless individuals, a cohesive force that reaches the world with the gospel. So their impact on the world exceeds the impact of Christ's public ministry during his lifetime here on the earth. These are the greater works. Again, stop and think about it. It's fascinating that Christ never really preached very far outside of a small radius from where he was born. In his time, Europe was never reached with the gospel. South America was never reached with the gospel. But under the ministry of his disciples, empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit, the good news of the gospel has gone through the entire world, right? And it continues to spread. That's the works that Christ is speaking about here. He's not, he's not speaking about physical manifestation. He's speaking about scope, extent. These are the greater works. The indwelling power of the person of the Holy Spirit is going to come in you, and you're going to do greater works. And guess what? That same indwelling person, the same person of the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. And we, too, have that power. It's better that I go away, because now the Comforter will come, and he'll empower you. Last word, last point. Comfort comes from the troubled heart by trusting Christ's promises. Verse 13. Trusting Christ's promises. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, very quickly, this is not some kind of carte blanche. Every whim of the flesh, all you've got to do is add the words in Jesus' name at the end of your request, and you're going to get everything you want. This is not some kind of magical, mystical formula. 
some special spiritual magic technique. Christ repeats the qualifying statement twice to the promise of the prayers that he'll answer. He says, whatever you ask in my name, or if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. So in Christ's names, or to pray in Christ's names, that means requesting that which is with, that is consistent with God's will and his purpose. To pray in Christ's name means that you acknowledge your spiritual poverty, your lack of self-sufficiency. You understand your unworthiness uh, to receive anything from God based on your own merit. So you approach God in the merits uh, of Christ. I come in Christ's name. To come in Christ's name, to approach the throne of God, means that you have a sincere desire that God himself and Christ would both be glorified. That's exactly what Jesus says here. He gives the reason that he'll answer his followers' prayers, that whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that, here's the reason, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So again, in the context, the disciples are fearful, they're troubled in spirit, Uh, Christ is about to part, Uh, he's the one who's helped them, he's the one who's provided them for the last, everything for them in the last three years. He wants them to understand that his absence, he's not going to leave them without resources. They're not going to be all alone in a hostile world. He assures them that they don't need to worry about anything. Maybe some truth for us? That we're not left alone in a hostile world, that we don't need to worry about anything? A person of the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to take residence within them. Again, the gap between heaven and earth is going to be met whenever you pray. And that although he's absent, they're going to still have access to all of his resources. I'm telling you, it's an amazing passage. We've taken four times to go through it. We probably could have taken longer. And what I think is really amazing, and part of what's really amazing about this passage, Christ is about to face what? Calvary, the cross. In the midst of his just hours away suffering, he has a concern for his disciples. He's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about them. Again, in the face of his own imminent, profound suffering, he's demonstrating his love for his followers. Again, everything that Christ has told these men some 2,000 years ago is applicable to us. We live in a world of, that's fallen. We live in a world that's troubled. Christ says what? Verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You can make the choice either to be obedient to the command or you can listen to yourself, talk to yourself into a frenzy and all kinds of nonsense. That's the choice. Belief. Keep on believing. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for your word, so thankful for the truth. Thankful that we as followers of Christ are under the care, always, of the sovereign triune God. And we just simply ask us that you, uh, we simply ask you that you'd help us increase our faith and believe what you say to be true because it is. We pray these things in Christ's name.